0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I couldn't be better, Tim. How are you? Same, same. And for this episode, Lance, we cover a case, well, we discuss a case that we've covered for now a few years. It's uh, the wrongful conviction of John Charles Juca. That's right.
1: John Juca has been in prison for the second-degree felony murder of Mark Fisher In October of 2003, this happened in Brooklyn, New York, and we have finally had the opportunity to speak with his attorney, who is a former prosecutor out of New York City. He's currently a criminal defense
0: attorney, Mark Bettero. That's right. And check out his website at betterolaw.com. And he has been John's lawyer for a while now and is really still fighting the good fight in trying to get John out of prison.
1: And in this interview, we speak about some of the mishandlings, some of the undermined tactics that were used uh, in the trial, subsequent from the trial, uh, in, an, in appeals. It's really, really astounding. And Mark even says that it's a lot worse than what you see on the surface. Uh, John Juca is not a guilty man. He deserves to be out. And it's really humbling to speak with someone who is in the position that Mark Bedrow is in and really an honor for, for us.
0: It really is. And it's a great conversation. Very informative. We cover a lot of the points along the way in John's case. And we sort of launched a little spinoff, Lance. Um, if you want just the episodes that we've produced on John Juca, you can search in your podcast player Free John Juca. And so there are seven episodes that we've done in the series of John Juca, and this is now the eighth. And, of course, one of those points that we hit is uh, Doreen Quinn Giuliano and her going undercover um, to prove juror misconduct. And, of course, that is John's mom. And so that uh, situation kind of comes up a little bit in this discussion with Mark.
1: And if you want to support Doreen, John's mom, if you want to support Mark Bettero and his mission to free john juca you can follow doreen at mother justice bk that's the letters bk at mother justice bk on twitter and you can follow mark betterow at betterow law that's b-e-d-e-r-o-w-l-a-w Bettero law on twitter
0: okay everybody thanks a lot for listening follow us on twitter at crawlspace pod thanks a lot Welcome to the podcast, Mark Betterow of Bettero Law. How are you today, Mark? I'm okay. How are you guys doing? Oh, we can't complain,
1: all things considered. Very cool of you to join us. It's a long time coming. We talk about John Juca's case, and of course, we all know Doreen, John's mom. And we know how busy you are with all your other cases. So we really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us for a little bit to talk about uh, John and Doreen and um, where it's at and how it all started. So we really do appreciate it.
2: Great. Happy to share. I think it's important that people know how bad this really is.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I agree. And we do, a, um, we do whatever you know i guess job we can in trying to understand it but a lot of the legal stuff is over our heads in some ways so um would love to ask you some real basic questions at some point um, about about this but um before we do i'd like to um know a little bit about your uh, law firm and uh and specialty
2: well i specialize in criminal defense um with i guess what you'd call a subspecialty or one of many subspecialties in wrongful convictions, which, of course, is the genre that that John's case would fall into. Uh, I started out as a prosecutor for about five and a half years in the Manhattan DA's office, Uh, spent about four years at a large law firm, and I've had my own exclusively criminal practice since 2008.
1: Great. And you uh, took on John Juka's case uh, when?
2: I think I met Doreen in 2013. Uh, She found me through another high profile mess uh, involving the Brooklyn DA's office, which frankly, I think probably attracted her to reach out. Uh, That involved uh, another guy who sat in jail for a year while the Brooklyn DA had actually indicted two men for the same crime, if you can believe that. And when that exploded um, shortly thereafter, I think she reached out to me and I met with her in my office. And that's, uh, almost eight years ago already.
1: Wow. That's amazing. When you look back on it and it's been almost a decade of nonstop fighting for John, did you know about the murder of Mark Fisher before you had met Doreen or before you heard about, yeah, before you had met Doreen?
2: I did. I mean, I think anybody who lived in New York City and was, you know, over the age of ten or whatever was familiar with what they called the Grid Kid killing, or uh, if nothing else, the the college football player from New Jersey who unfortunately ended up, in, you know, in a bad situation in Brooklyn. Um, I mean, I certainly remember reading about it, flipping through the tabloids while I was a prosecutor, just reading it about it on the subway like anyone else, uh, never thought much of it other than what I read. Uh, I even remember a few years later when there was a large story about this apparently crazy woman who went undercover and, and you know, according to the tabloids was trying to seduce a juror to get justice and, and realized it was also that case. Um, and then when Doreen showed up a few years later, um, there it was again. So yeah, I've known about the situation in some fashion since 2004, 2003,
0: 2004. In my head, it seems like that's, that's a bit different. Um, you went from prosecutor to defense, and now uh, you work with some wrongful convictions. Is is that a transition that you uh, went through?
2: Uh, well, I don't know if I went through a transition. I mean, I, it's certainly a normal career progression for prosecutors to become defense attorneys. There, there are many prosecutors uh, who will tell you publicly that they never would do that or they can't do that, including uh, I've heard the prosecutor who is the subject of John's Odyssey say that before, which is interesting. But um, no, I mean, look, to me, it's about the rule, of law, justice, fair. And there's certainly no shame in going after people who are The prosecutor thinks you're guilty, but you have to do it fairly within the bounds of justice. And, you know, that's where people like me come in to make sure they do that.
1: I'm really curious to go back on your first impression of Doreen when you heard about this woman who went undercover to do this. What was your impression of the woman before you met her?
2: Um, She's got to be absolutely nuts. Uh, I think like anyone else uh, on, is a first reaction. And then when you kind of think about it and read about it um, and saw some of the evidence that she actually uncovered, which I'm now familiar with. I mean, I've heard these recordings uh, you know, from a lawyerly standpoint, not from a tabloid reader standpoint. Um, so once you get over the initial reaction of she sounds nuts, uh, there's some degree of, wow, has she got balls uh, to do. What she did to, for over that period of time. And then, my God, there's actually something there. Um, you know, I wasn't the lawyer involved in, in that motion involving the juror misconduct, but um, she uncovered things which are really disturbing. And, and to be clear, none of that relates to the DA's office role in, in, in any misconduct or anything. That, that was juror misconduct, plain and simple. But, um, I guess to answer your question, my first reaction was, wow, she's crazy, but wow, she also got something here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very determined.
2: They call her mother justice, you know,
0: that's right. And, um, can you take us through a little bit of John's case and, uh, where it stands today?
2: Well, it stands today working backwards. Um, he has a hearing scheduled now for March, um, that hearing was initially ordered last August and has been adjourned several times purely for COVID reasons. Um, the courts in New York are still, for the most part, closed. And and you know, in a matter like this, which has heavy public presence and whatnot, um, it, it's not ideal in in the court sense of having this many people around each other. So. Uh, Through nobody's fault, the matter is being adjourned, but there is a a hearing involving what we think is compelling evidence that the DA's office suppressed evidence from um, a witness they interviewed shortly before trial in a sworn statement who alleged that Antonio Russo confessed to killing Mark Fisher. and most importantly as it relates to John's case also stated that he tried to get John to take the gun after the murder but that John refused to and actually had him leave his house and that the the theory that John took the murder weapon was a key critical component of the DA's case at trial which they argued showed that he was guilty along with Russo and um, in a prior hearing, as I know you guys are familiar with, that ended in the Court of Appeals last year, ironically, uh, the Court of Appeals, although they found that the prosecutor suppressed other evidence, they, they claimed it, it wasn't material to the outcome of the case because the other so called strong evidence included evidence that John got rid of the gun, which that was in June of 2019. The court did not have the current motion, again, which involves the statement of this witness claiming that Russo admitted John did not take the gun before it. So it's uh, incredibly frustrating on the one hand that we have to do this piecemeal. But when they don't disclose evidence in a proper fashion, unfortunately, this is what happens.
1: Yeah, that's a very clear way to put it. Thank you, because it kind of gets a little convoluted um, because so much time has passed. And honestly, there's been so many things that we've heard from from Doreen and other people that were mishandled and i mean i don't want to go overboard and say intentionally buried but it feels like there's so many of these factors that you have to sift through is it, it, what's the spectrum on that
2: there are things that happened in this case that are inconceivable some of them which were aware to the defense uh, and that you just, you, you scratch your head and say, why would the prosecutor do this? But there are so many underhanded things that happened in the case regarding uh, the disclosure of evidence, whether it relates to a, a last minute prosecution witness's credibility evidence, which would have eviscerated his credibility or something that's more easy to understand such as when the prosecutor is arguing that Juca had to have gotten rid of the gun but she was personally told a couple of months before trial under oath by another witness that uh, the co-defendant acknowledged that he had nothing to do with that and that doesn't make its way to the defense. That, that is the most basic type of Brady violation imaginable. I mean, that, that evidence, if possessed by the defense and introduced before the jury, assuming that would have happened, would have entirely undermined a, a key component of the DA's case. And if that evidence had been suppressed, excuse me, had been disclosed, then a number of other things couldn't happen. I mean, the prosecutor couldn't make arguments in summation that she makes if the defense has the evidence, such as there's no question that he got rid of the gun. You know it because of these reasons when there was in fact evidence, but when the prosecutor keeps it in their back pocket, then you know we have a problem, obviously.
0: So there's some bending of the rules with this prosecutor.
2: Well, uh, look, uh, it's no secret that, you know, I've been highly critical of her her conduct, certainly in this case. Uh, Yes. I mean, let's call it what it is, her conduct in John's case. um, And and it's not just me. Every appellate judge who has looked at this case has concluded 10 out of 10 over two uh, different levels of appeals courts that she did not disclose favorable evidence to the defense. One judge of the Court of Appeals, which in New York is the highest court of the state, um, point blank stated that her conduct was deliberate, uh, intentionally wrong and unethical and an egregious violation of law. And we're talking about multiple pieces of evidence, multiple presentations of false testimony and misleading the jury and uh, as I think you guys are also aware, you know I've seen similar conduct in another case uh, from just a couple of months after and before, excuse me, a couple of months before John's trial, which which is a separate issue and perhaps the topic of a separate discussion at some other time. But uh, when you see multiple pieces of evidence uh, over the course of multiple cases that are suppressed in a similar fashion, and then a similar excuse is given as to why. It wasn't disclosed. Um, sometimes when it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck.
1: So, from an average person's point of view, I think my first question is why is this person still practicing law and why is John still in prison?
2: Well, I don't know that she's practicing law. Uh, you know, she hosts a, a TV show, as you know, that is. Ironically titled True Conviction. Um, I'll just leave that for a moment. Um, As far as why why is John still in prison? Because the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office has fought tooth and nail, made every argument possible. Some, frankly, that I find ridiculous. Others that they just put forth in every case, such as even if they violate the rules, it doesn't matter because it's not relevant or not material in the legal sense. Um, I I think I wanna be optimistic that the end is coming near that there is gonna be another hearing. She is gonna have to testify again. Uh, When she testified five years ago at the last hearing, I didn't know about the evidence that is now the subject matter of this hearing. I didn't know about her uh, similar misconduct in another case and I think frankly, the judge didn't know either. Um, And I think, so I think the universe has changed a little bit in that regard. But, you know, when a jury finds somebody guilty, the system is not designed to just simply throw it out because somebody says, this isn't fair. There is a mechanism to have that happen, but unfortunately it can take years and years and just lots of process. And, And, you know, we're going through that. But, you know, the DA's conduct here certainly elongated that process. If if the evidence that is the subject of the motion now had been disclosed even five years ago, it could have been combined with the prior motion and we would have had some degree of finality to it. But because it wasn't, is this piecemeal disclosure of favorable evidence even years later, uh, we just go up and down the ladder. And it, it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of uh, emotional, emotional discipline for John, his mother, his family, his friends, and and anyone else who's interested to see that justice gets done. But we will.
1: And you also use the word uh, excuse when you said that when it's brought to the attention, there's always the same excuse as far as this uh, suppressed evidence. What What's the excuse that they use or she uses?
2: The, well, it's not her who's who's making the excuse now. It's the office that's defending the conviction. But Uh, It it is regrettable, but you see this all the time, that prosecutors, and it's a little disturbing now because, you know, this is supposed to be a different Brooklyn DA's office. Uh, This is not the Charles Hines DA's office anymore, which that office uh, is the poster child for wrongful convictions in America. That's just a fact. Uh, And of course, John's case occurred during that period but uh, in the last several years, they have made some admirable changes in that office and they're supposed to be, or at least are the self-styled leading progressive prosecutor in the country. And so when there are obvious ethical violations, you'd like to see them be a little more proactive about being fair about it. When the argument in, in the majority of these cases and certainly John's case is, well, even if these mistakes happened, it doesn't matter because it couldn't have impacted the outcome of the trial that's disappointing. It's particularly disappointing when you look at a case like John's and, and you see even separate and apart from, from the issues that are now uh, involved in these hearings about the, the evidence that was used or the evidence that existed to find him guilty. It's astounding that he was found guilty in the first place because the case, to the extent that there ever was one, is completely eviscerated. There's nothing. Um, but apparently, you know, the jury found him guilty and in the, in the eyes of the DA, that's worthwhile to keep this going for as long as possible.
0: Right. And knowing what we do now, if, uh, John had been tried now, just can't imagine he would be found guilty.
2: Well, let me, let me be clear about that. If he's granted a new trial, yeah. Uh, I, I'm not in the prediction business, but if he is afforded a new trial, uh, there won't be a new trial for the simple reason they can't. Uh, the evident, the witnesses are gone. Uh, there were, in essence, four witnesses who accused him of anything uh, at the trial. And that was all, well, John said, John said three of those four witnesses have recanted under oath. They have literally issued sworn statements saying, I did not tell the truth at trial and have explained why. The, the one remaining witness, uh, Albert Cleary, um, is, is the same witness who denied, denied, denied knowing anything for a year and actually went out on his own uh, during before there was an arrest in this case and took a polygraph exam, uh, purportedly passed it, got a report that says, I know nothing about this, this homicide and presented it to the DA to say, look, I don't know anything. But a couple of months later, when he was pressured and threatened with probation violations and perjury, all of a sudden said, fine, John told me you know he had something to do with this. Now, I, I don't know on what planet, what prosecutor would say, this is a good way to proceed that's what happened here.
1: Jeez, and what what was the evidence that convicted or lack of evidence, bad evidence? What was it that convicted him in the first place because you 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 kind of alluded to that at uh, at the beginning of
2: it's a, it's a it's a tried and true method of throw enough mud at the wall and if if you throw enough of it, some of it will stick. Um the case against him basically was his own words. And, and the problem was that you had witnesses who, all of whom admitted that they, they lied before they told the truth at trial, when in fact they lied at trial, as they now admit. But they denied knowledge for a, a long period of time until they were pressured by the prosecutors and eventually, quote unquote, came clean and, and said, well, John alleged he had something to do with it. The irony is this. Of all the witnesses who accused him at trial, there was only one who who, who the prosecutor argued came forward for civic duty and decency. The rest of them were all scumbags who lied to help him until they were threatened. And the one that she argued came clean and and was a good guy, uh, a good Samaritan, was John Avito, who was the classic jailhouse informant junkie who was desperate to avoid uh, going to prison for a violation. And you know that's why he met with Nicolazzi, went to court with her and ended up avoiding jail. Um, and, and he turned out to be ironically the one that they claimed did this out of the goodness of his heart. But the, the other problem was, so all these witnesses come forward claiming that John said he did it. And, and the two main ones were, were Albert Cleary, and Lauren Calciano, and, and their trial testimony, it actually created a veto. I, I don't think a veto would even have testified if Cleary and Calciano had made any sense. I mean, at, at the end of the day, they, they alleged that they were talking to John at the same time, and this is important. They were having a, a conversation, the three of them. And uh, Calciano claimed that during this conversation, John said, well, you know, Russo asked me for a gun and I gave it to him and then he went out and did something stupid, which would be, if anything, you know, a, a felony murder type of theory of guilt that I just gave him a gun, but I didn't plan on him doing something terrible. Cleary claimed that that John gave Russo a gun and he told them that he ordered Russo to do it, that he gave him the gun. And he said, you go do this because you show him what's up or or ridiculous words to that effect that he he disrespected my house by sitting on a table, uh, which it wasn't even John who got upset about that, by the way, Uh, or this other just absurd theory of there was this street gang ghetto mafia that was some big thing and that we need a body so go kill him for that and so you have a situation where you have these two witnesses that are describing the same conversation and it's one of them is on venus and the other one is on mars it makes no sense whatsoever and and it gets so ridiculous that at trial um you have calciano essentially saying well if that's what cleary said happened he's lying um, to put it differently, you basically had these two prosecution witnesses accusing each other under oath of lying and, and committing perjury about what happened. Then you add in a veto who claims, no, 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 what John told me was that he did it himself, that he actually was there with Russo and committed the murder by hitting him over the head with a gun, and that Russo then shot him, and maybe John also shot him. So, it's a type of situation where you had a prosecutor actually argue that uh, Juca was at the murder scene and he was not at the murder scene, but who cares, he's guilty. And that's what I mean by saying, if you're throwing mud at the wall, it sticks. You sprinkle it with, he's in some gang, this ghetto mafia thing. Uh, you call him Tony Soprano, which she did. Uh, this is in 2005 when the Sopranos are at the apex of uh, television, this kind of thing. You use a couple of fancy words like capos and soldiers and things of that nature. And, you know, again, it's it's Brooklyn, it's Heinz, it's, it's that office. Guilty. Done. And for years, wow. uh, yep. the, the public perception of, of John Juca was that he's a, a street thug, murdering gang kind of, of killer. Um, whereas today I I think the general consensus is that he is obviously wrongfully convicted and that the only people who stand by this are that small bubble on J street in Brooklyn, um, who just refuse to acknowledge and accept that one of their own would have railroaded him, uh, in order to get a, to get a conviction. And, And let's not kid ourselves. This was a high profile case and for, for years, this case was cited by the trial prosecutor as the the conviction. This is you know what this is the good work that I've done and was exploited to, to further a television career, um, cited on, on a biography. And I, I, if you look now, they don't cite it anymore. Our producers apparently don't cite it anymore because, um again when when you say john juca the first thing that comes to your mind today isn't convicted murderer it's wrongfully convicted
1: right right what is it going to take at this point to get him the possibility of a new trial or to get him out of incarceration
2: well um in the first instance you know we're having another evidentiary hearing which is very important because Uh, You know, the trial prosecutor is going to have to testify again. Uh, Her trial partner who worked on the case with her, who is now the chief of their rackets bureau, is going to have to testify. Uh, Both defense attorneys for Juca and Russo are going to testify at this hearing. Uh, They are both going to testify, by the way, that we have no reason to believe that we received this favorable evidence. And if we had, we would have. So I, I, I think the evidence is going to show at this hearing that it is overwhelming that this evidence was not disclosed to the defense. And then what will happen is the DA's office will make the argument they always make, which is once again, who cares? It doesn't matter. It's not material. Uh, This wouldn't have have been admissible. It wouldn't have helped the jury to know this. It doesn't matter. Um, And I think a judge this time, it's the same judge as the last time. Uh, Again, I'm not in the prediction business, but I think that perhaps everyone and judges and human beings like all of us will have a, a, you know, a healthy dose of skepticism about what, what's being told. And in any event, uh, we'll be creating a very detailed record about what was disclosed, what was, not, what was not disclosed. And so that if it's necessary to go up on appeal again, which I hope it's not, because that adds time, no question, that we will have secured a very proper record, which would lead to the conclusion that it's possible. That's all we have to show is that it's possible that this evidence might have led to a different verdict, And I I feel strongly that it would have.
1: And at that point, what will happen to Nicolazzi if, if the, if this is brought, you know, to light?
2: Well, I mean, it's all out there. Uh, you know, this is all on the public record. And, um, you know, I'm not going to speak for the Investigation Discovery Network or their producers or anybody else who thinks that uh, she's a a good candidate to to lecture the masses on proper procedure and ethics on on how to conduct a homicide investigation. That's for others to decide. I have my own views. They're strong, you can imagine, but I'll leave those aside. The short answer is I, I have no idea What's going to happen to her? Um, you know whether there are ethical issues which should come to light and be dealt with in another forum. But I can also tell you that although uh, you know, again, I think the evidence is overwhelming that she suppressed various forms of evidence from John. The focus here is getting getting him out of prison, and wh- whatever would happen to her because of her conduct, that's all secondary, and that that's going to be for others to determine and decide.
1: This is going to be a weird question, but what kind of pressure can the public put on individuals to make some change happen? I, we, we talk about John's case a lot. We've had numerous episodes with Doreen and, and with journalists and now yourself. Is this good? Is it, is it good to keep talking about this or, or would someone in your position be nervous that something said that shouldn't be said?
2: Well, oh, I, I think, I mean, look, this, this has been a high-profile case from the night of, of, of unfortunately, Mark Fisher's murder uh, because of the kind of person he was, uh, you know, the quintessential good kid. I mean, that's, there's no doubt about that. Um, but I, public attention on this is definitely good. Um, you know, look, you, you have, for whatever reason, a, a bad conviction and a prosecutor who has bragged about it, a, a perfect record, and looks into a television camera uh, saying, I never lose. In essence, I'm perfect, I'm the best, and uh, I'm going to tell you how it works. And, you know, it is encouraging at least the TV viewers of that show to believe that. So, in, in essence, I, I think certainly it calls for any evidence of the contrary that's in the public realm. Uh, for a free exchange of ideas for that to be out there and people can draw their own conclusions. But I think also it's important, uh, this goes beyond Nicolazzi. I mean, she's gonna say whatever she's gonna say or not say whatever she's gonna say, but uh, the the person here who ought to be answering the questions about this is the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. Um, You know, they are the ones defending the conduct at the same time they are telling the public that we are the gold standard on wrongful convictions and we acknowledge our past with you know the Heinz office and and correcting these wrongs but you know they seem to be far and few between about correcting wrongs when they involve people that are close and dear uh to their hearts such as you know Nicolazzi who is of the same era as as all the people who are making these decisions in the DA's office, whether it be at the executive level or the conviction review level or uh, the appeals bureau. I mean, I, I don't think the progressive DA's office should have a function where the appeals bureau has a full-time job defending garbage Heinz convictions, which is what they basically do on a full-time regular basis. I, I, it's a little disappointing. Um, I actually personally like the district attorney. I think he's a good guy. And I think he has made a lot of good changes, but, and, but I will never understand uh, why they are taking the position that they're taking on John's case, which I think is just a, an egregious miscarriage of justice. It, it, I mean, it stinks to high hell on so many levels, some of which are not even the subject of, of this appeal. I mean, this don't forget, this is the case where the DA's office, again, under Hines, actually hired a witness years later in the case, who clearly was misleading and, and, and not cooperative and not truthful about certain events. And then years later became a colleague uh, of Nicolazzi's in the DA's office. I mean, it's, who's ever heard of that? The, the, the conflict is, is off the charts, but that's the way sometimes it worked back then in Brooklyn. And I don't know if you guys are movie buffs, but, it, but it's like the end of Chinatown. I mean, it's just forget it, Jake. It's Brooklyn. That, that's the way things worked in, in the Heinz DA's
0: office. And uh, there was an article that was recently put out by Theodore Ham from The Independent um, about another one of Nicolazzi's convictions. It's a case, uh, the case of Jermaine Cox. Can you tell us a little bit about this one?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's similar. The issues are, are similar, and in many ways, it's very disturbing. Um, the legal issue in Jermaine's in, in case relates to disclosure of evidence of a particular detective's interactions with two witnesses uh, and whether he spoke to a witness before she identified Cox in a lineup and also the fact that he presented a photo array to a witness about 24 hours, a different witness 24 hours after the murder, uh, which included Cox's image uh, exactly as he appeared at the time of the crime. And the witness did not identify Cox. He could not, uh, although Cox apparently had unique features. That witness testified 18 months later that he specifically recalled the unique skin complexion and unique hair of the guy who did it, which of course, you know, she argued meant he had to have identified Cox. The problem is, um, she didn't disclose the evidence that the witness did not identify him in the photo array, or disclose that the detective had interactions with another witness before she viewed the lineup. And it gets so absurd, because in the early part of the case um, she made a sworn statement indicating I turned over some of this evidence uh, when it act but she didn't according to the trial lawyer who was sworn to that fact uh, But and when this came up in the middle of the trial and he said what's going on here uh, Nicolazzi told the judge not under oath this time but but told the judge there's this evidence doesn't exist. It, it, I know for a fact, I reviewed the court file, I read this, I spoke to all the witnesses. So we, we had the ludicrous situation of where she previously swore that she disclosed evidence that she didn't. And when called out a year later, uh, was adamantly denying the existence of evidence that she previously claimed that she had disclosed, which is somewhat similar to some of the evidence that was not disclosed in Jucas' case. It's, it's something it's, it's, it's virtually unheard of. And I think it's also very important to realize that the way her reputation is a very meticulous, thorough prosecutor, top of the line, um, very meticulous, you know, very cross eyes dot every T and, and that reputation, you know, in these circumstances, I think actually hurts because if that's the case, These are amateur mistakes, which would tend to suggest that you'd have to think it was intentional because somebody being thorough and meticulous would not make these just incomprehensible oversights. And there's just oversight after oversight after oversight, including, you know, to go back to Juka's case, um, some of this is not the direct subject of the motion, but, Um, she didn't disclose initially the grand jury testimony of Lauren Calciano, who was probably the most important witness at the time. Um, How do you forget to disclose that? She didn't disclose other recordings of of prosecution witnesses, of statements made under oath until the defense said, where is this? Oh, I didn't even know it existed. That's just not believable. And, you know, all of this will be addressed at the hearing when we eventually uh, have it. Yeah.
1: How does that play out? So, It's brought up to the court's attention. It's brought to the court's attention that this piece of evidence was never presented. And then she actually says the words, I didn't know that existed, or I forgot to do that. How does one get away with doing that professionally without any repercussions?
2: I honestly don't know. Uh, and again, uh, I, I'm not going to say that that she has officially, because there's a hearing scheduled in John's case, and I very much look forward to asking her under oath uh, about all of this and much, much more. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's one of these things too. It's always unfortunate when you're the Monday morning lawyer. Years later, you don't know what's going on in live time. You don't, you know, know exactly everything that happened um, 15 years prior, but I, it, it is incomprehensible to me how a top-notch expert, so to speak, could make these kinds of careless mistakes again and again and again. It just statistically seen, and, and over the course of multiple cases that are tried months apart, I'm not a statistics guy, but that strikes me as one hell of a coincidence.
0: And when you were a prosecutor, did you did you witness anyone doing this kind of thing in in that office?
2: No, I mean, let me be very clear. I I was in the Manhattan DA's office, which um, was not the Charles Hine, Brooklyn, D.A.'s office. Uh, There's kind of a big in my view, a, a big difference between the offices, not that there aren't problems in the Manhattan DA's office, believe me, there are. Um, but you know, I can't speak for the culture of, of how things happen inside the Brooklyn DA's office, because that's not my world. But again, you know, there's a reason why um, a lot of the wrongful conviction scandals that you hear about, names, Scarcella, that's all in the Brooklyn DA's office. Uh, Years ago, you used to hear about Mike Vecchione from the Brooklyn DA's office. That's all Brooklyn. Um, You know, these two cases involving Nicolazzi, that's all the Brooklyn DA's office. Uh, You might have read about some cases recently involving uh, a guy named Reeves. That's the Brooklyn DA's office again and again and again. Um, And and this is why, um, you know, someone like Ken Thompson came in. Uh, You know, unfortunately, he didn't get to finish his work, obviously, because he passed away. Uh, regrettably, but um, that's how he was able to come in by basically saying, I'm not going to be the Brooklyn DA's office. And, and you can list any number of high profile defendants you've heard about. You've probably spoke to some of them over the years who can just tell you horror stories about how things work. I mean, Jabbar Collins is one who comes to mind. Um, there, there are many, many others. And this was just happened time and time again in the Brooklyn DA's office. I, I never heard about this happening in the Manhattan DA's office during that time period. Um, I also know that they, they just prosecuted cases in, in a different way. They had in Manhattan, you had one person handle the case. In Brooklyn, you know they would get handed off and, and different people touching different things. And I can't tell you that that factored into some of these messes that they created But I certainly uh, always thought that the Manhattan model was a far superior one.
1: And I'm curious uh, when the last time you spoke with John was and what was his attitude and do you ever prop him up, give him uh, some encouragement?
2: Well, I mean, I'll speak in a general sense. I mean, again, I wouldn't ever talk about, uh, you know, specific conversations with any client on anything. But uh, I don't think it's, it's hard to understand that here's a guy who basically was taken in custody a couple of days before Christmas in 2004 with a bunch of Christmas gifts in his hands at his home. And uh, that, you know we're now about 16 plus years later. Um, and you know, he has also, whether it's cruelly or uncruelly, There was a period of time where we were on top of the mountain, as you know, after the appellate division did reverse his conviction temporarily due to Nicolazzi's suppression of of evidence until the court of appeals uh, ruled that it wasn't material, even though they didn't know about this issue I told you earlier about uh, the statement that Russo admitted that John wouldn't take the gun. Um, So there, there are hills and valleys, there are highs and lows. you know, uh, I think for the most part, he he's pretty strong and determined and resolute. But any human being to, to live through this for 16 years plus, um, you know, it, it's difficult, clearly.
0: Is there something that you want to mention um, in this interview, something we haven't asked yet?
2: Well, uh, no, I think you guys are doing a good job bringing attention to it. and I, It's appreciated. You, you know, you kind of broached on this earlier, but I think... The more the public knows about what a miscarriage of justice is happening in any particular case, then I think it's important that people talk about it and bring attention to it. It, it can only help, and it has helped in, in many other cases. And I think that, you know, again, if I were to just keep beating the same issue uh, as it relates to John, uh, the, we're dealing with a case in, in its current posture in which the prosec- one of the prosecutor's key arguments was that because Juka got rid of the gun, um, that makes him, that's powerful evidence of his guilt. And you have a prosecutor who told the jury in a very lecturing fashion, you know that he took the gun. You know that because you know he told Albert Cleary this and another witness. And at the whole time that she was making that argument, she had stuffed in her back pocket a statement made directly to her, a recorded sworn statement from an individual who was in jail with Juca and Russo, not together, but met both of them. And and who Russo told that I I, I murdered Mark Fisher and I went to Juca's house to give him the gun and he wouldn't take it. And she didn't tell the defense about that. And that is just outrageous. It's egregious. And if that is not a fundamental Brady violation, I don't know what is. And that's where we are. That's where that's the current state of the case. There is a recording in her own voice interviewing this witness. And, you know, she issued a, a sworn statement during the pendency of this litigation. And her response was, I can't state for certainty whether I disclosed it or not. But, you know, I, I never would have done it on purpose. Well, that may be or it may not be, but she couldn't even state that I know that I did. And I think that speaks volumes. And I, I think when the defense attorneys back then come in and say, trust me, I believe I would have remembered if uh, certainly Juca's lawyer, that if there had been a witness uh, who told me that Russo admitted this, that I would have known about it. Uh, and he says, I didn't know about it. And Russo's lawyer, who of course would have been damaged by this statement, would have would have known about it. And, and let me just touch on one thing that's really important. Um, the case against Russo w- was a little bit similar to the case against John in that it consisted of Russo's admissions to many witnesses, along with some other facts which were very damaging. He cut his hair 20 minutes later, uh, he fled to California, but the case against Russo consisted of of his own admissions. The one that the one that he confessed to, who spoke to Nicolazzi, who also said John didn't, you know, Russo said John didn't take the gun. His version of events of what Russo told him matched almost to a T the case against Russo, and the DA's office did not use that witness although they used other ones and the question that any reasonable fact finder should ask is why why wouldn't they have used they put him on the witness list why wouldn't they have used him and the answer is if you use him it's going to help against russo but it's going to hurt the case against juca and i so again you know all this will come out at the hearing and you know if i'm getting too legalese i apologize but um, The evidence, I think, of the non-disclosure and the gamesmanship that was going on here, which ultimately results in a promo for a TV show. I've never lost a murder case. You know, I'm 35 and 0 or whatever the hell it is. Um, Who says that? Unless, you know, you are, I mean, that has all the red flags and indicia uh, of the wrong focus, overzealousness. And perhaps the wrong motivation. Again, nobody can get inside her head. I don't know. Maybe it is all mistakes. But again, the law doesn't matter if you don't turn over favorable evidence. And there's a possibility that it could have impacted the verdict. And the trial's not fair. Hard stop.
1: Yeah, it's it's so frustrating. Every time we do an episode on on John, no matter who we have on, it's just so frustrating to to follow along and realize especially if if someone like yourself who's in the thick of it telling us like, this is what, how it is. It's so frustrating because even when you ask that why question and you get the answer, it's like, really, that's the answer. Like it's, it's, I I guess I have to wrap my head around someone getting into the, a profession, like, you know, being a lawyer (laughs) only to become a TV star. You know what I mean? Do you think that she became a lawyer because she thought, oh, well, this could be this could parlay into t- television quite easily?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I'll I'll give you this disclaimer. I have no idea what's going on in her head. And um, I, I doubt very sincerely that she became a prosecutor for that. And I can't even say uh, what she's done in other cases other than these two. I will say that it, it's alarming. Okay, that if it was in these two cases, uh, again, statistically, are we going to assume it wasn't in any others? But no, I don't believe she got into this work to do it. But as far as wanting to be a TV star, that doesn't offend me. It's a natural progression for lawyers uh, to be legal analysts and experts. I've appeared on TV or the news many, many times. Um, It's certainly not why you defend cases or prosecute cases. So I, I don't know what it is, but I, I do know that once you decide to do that and, and your, your selling point is, especially, you know, we're talking 2020, 2021, where we see now about wrongful convictions in, in a light that never would have been perceived 15 years ago. I mean, times are different, um, but, but you see what I think is just this completely tone deaf approach uh, whoever's responsible, and I remember she testified years ago, and I asked her about this, about this promotion, about bragging about being 35 and 0, and I never lost. And she said, "Well, I, you know, I said that because that's what the producers, you know, wanted me to say." That's ridiculous. Um, there is, you know, you look in the camera, and you're, if your selling point is I've never lost a homicide case. Um, that's just gonna lead to a lot of thoughts from other people that about, well, maybe something untowards happened. Uh, maybe you're not trying enough difficult cases. I don't know, uh, and, and let's be clear, she's a very good lawyer, very skilled, very articulate, I- incredible communicator. Um, you know, she's talented, there's no question about that. But you know, as far as it goes on Juga's case and Cox, uh, things happen here which should not have happened and and to me no experienced prosecutor could ever could ever make. So I don't know if she lost her way. I don't, I really don't know. I just when you promote yourself in the fashion that that she does and and her producers are choosing to do, you are inviting scrutiny. You are inviting people to inspect that. So, um, and, you know, at least in these two cases, th- there's a lot of there there. But, you know, you'd have to ask her about why she did it. But I don't think she's going to talk to you.
1: Well, we, we have opened the invitation to her. Uh, anytime she wants to come on and, and chat with us, uh, it is an open invitation. So maybe, maybe she'll surprise us all and shoot an email.
2: You know, I mean, certainly I'll, I'll look forward to talking to her under oath at a yeah. hearing, but, you know, also, you know, she didn't submit a sworn response in Jermaine Cox's last motion. Uh, although we alleged all these violations, the, the prosecution met with her. They asked for a time extension so they could meet with her before responding, and then they never submitted a response. Uh, with a sworn statement from her which i will tell you in in 20 something years of this i've never seen that 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 is astounding um so again that's something we'll just have to ask her on the witness stand